The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and for letting us be part of your day. And Merry Christmas to you. Glad you've joined us as we have uh, plenty to talk about today. We have uh, more trade news. The president says uh, maybe we wait a while on getting a deal done with China. Uh, Meanwhile, in Congress, lots going on. Impeachment hearings, USMCA, spending Also, are they going to get anything done on this ag labor reform bill? We'll talk about it with Allison Crittenden with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Some 300 ag groups are supporting this ag labor reform legislation, but not Farm Bureau. They have some concerns, e-verifying some things. So we'll look at the... Uh, what Farm Bureau says about the strengths and weaknesses of this uh, legislation and why they still are not fully sold on it. That's coming up. Also, we're going to talk with Erin Borer. She's an economist with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. We had some really good trade news recently uh, as far as being able to get more U.S. beef into the European Union. We'll talk about that, what that could mean for the future, and just look at how meat exports have gone overall this year. You know, considering all the headwinds, all the challenges with trade, uh, we haven't done too bad with uh, meat exports this year, so we'll talk about that. And we'll talk uh, markets with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. All that coming up on today's program. We're going to start things off, though, with DTN reporter Todd Neely. Todd, good to talk with you again. Yesterday, we wake up to the news that uh, the president's putting uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, imports from Brazil and uh, Argentina. Now we find out uh, today we wake up to the U.S. president saying, well, maybe we just wait a while before we get a deal done with China. And the stock market reacted expectedly down uh, sharply today and certainly not the news that people have been wanting to hear. No, Mike, you know, it really isn't. Um, I I do think that we're at a point where, uh, you know, we've kind of we've seen this throughout the whole China saga that. Uh, you know, depend on how talks are going, depend on what's being said in the news and so on. The president typically reacts in some way. Um, so he must know something that's going, you know, ongoing with the negotiations that maybe he's not as, as uh, you know, positive about. And perhaps, you know, a threat of more tariffs, uh, you know, putting off the, the China deal to the election. Uh, I don't know how much stock we can put in that. I think, um, I think a lot of times the president has shown that uh, he's willing to not necessarily show his entire hand, but he's he, he's kind of a hard negotiator. And so uh, I suspect this is just another one of those salvos across the board here that he's he's looking to uh, to get China's attention on on some of these things. And I, you know, I do think though that you know that as we go on into this next year, um, you know, we got this phase one agreement that we heard so much about uh, and how good it was for agriculture. I do think that. Uh, if you were to talk to the president, I would suspect that he'd say, yeah, we need to get this done right away. Uh, election years are tough, but I, I do think, though, that uh, Trump has shown that he's willing to, 
to do whatever it takes, you know, when, when it comes to the hard, the hard negotiating on this. Yeah, I don't know that we know any more or less than we did or if we're any closer or farther away because this is just the way this has been going all along. We, it's, You know, the news makes it sound like we're close, then it's, all of a sudden we're back, and it's been up and down. I'll say this, though, uh, about both China and USMCA, and hopefully we're a lot closer to USMCA. Many people think we are. But it, it just right. has the feeling we've had this carrot dangled in front of us for a year or so, and we're seemingly oh so close, and then it's farther away, but it, it's, it dangles out there, and uh, we get our hopes up, and they get dashed. We get our hopes up, they get dashed. Just just the bend the pattern here, and hopefully, at least on USMCA, maybe we get a breakthrough, but uh, we haven't got that yet, even though, again, we're being told it, it might be close. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the thing, the one thing I, I do think it's, it's highly possible, uh, if we do get the USMCA sooner rather than later, it's probably going to be very early into the next year because, uh, you know, Senator Grassley on the Senate floor yesterday, uh, made a brief statement about USMCA and basically saying that this week is it. If, if the Senate can't get something to act on, it's probably not going to happen this year just because of the way the holiday breaks, uh, plays out. Um, but I do think, you know, there, there's still quite a bit of optimism that's going to get done. I mean, there's still talk going on uh, between Democrats and, and trade officials, um, you know, in different little aspects of this agreement. Uh, so I, I think that's probably, as you said, it's probably a lot, lot closer to being resolved in, in the whole China situation. But, uh, yeah, it's really been a tough, it's been a tough year. Uh, you know, every time we hear a bit of news we think is good, and then something else comes along and it's bad. I, I really think after a while, people tend to sort of tune everything out until they can actually see some sort of agreement actually come to. I won't say that there are those that on USMCA just don't want it to happen. I think maybe they do, but they don't seem to be in any hurry about it, whether it's political reasons or whatever. Uh, I just think if, if if they really wanted it done, it could have been done and would have been done by now. It just seems to me they've right. slow played this, and again, maybe it's political reasons, maybe not. I don't know, but you know, you run out of excuses after a while. We're, well, we're running out of time. Well, you put yourself in this position. The legit, the deal has been negotiated for what a year. <laughs> I mean, they've had time Absolutely. to get this thing finalized by now. Yeah, and I and I think you're right. I mean, I think if we were to really get terribly serious about this, it could come up for a vote. In the next day or two, and it could be on to the Senate rather quickly. Uh, I know Grassley has talked about, you know, their willingness to jump all over this when they get it. Uh, so I, I do think, though, that uh, you know the will is still there. I, I agree with you. I think there's probably uh, the politics of, of the situation has really kind of gotten in the way. But I, I do, we, as you said, you know, this this agreement's been in place for quite some time. It's been agreed to by both sides. Uh, Mexico and Canada have even gotten a little. A little, little chilled on it. Not sure what they're going to do at some at times, but in the end, we've seen everybody come together, and here we are. We're just waiting on a vote. You know, it's one thing I, I understand when people say, "Well, this is a major deal. It takes time. You got to look at look at it closely. Go through." Well, yeah, but I don't get the feeling there's been that urgency in that process. You know, it's been more of a delay, 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 and that I find that very frustrating. Meanwhile, we're still waiting Absolutely. to hear what the White House is going to do with. Uh, Small refinery exemptions, uh, allocated gallons, uh, RFS levels. Uh, uh, do we know any more about what's going on between the White House and EPA? At this point, no. Uh, what we can say, though, is that uh, 
uh, EPA is moving toward finalizing an agreement probably December, early January, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, and as, as people in biofuels have been saying for some time, they just want this thing to made, be made right. And I think, you know, even though we're past the statutory deadline of, of November 30 for uh, EPA finalizing it on time, uh, there doesn't seem to be any uh, great outcry, uh, you know, of concern about it being delayed. Uh, I, w- I would suspect that, uh, you know, the White House knows about this. They know about the conflict uh, between the agreement and what's in the proposed rule. Uh, I would suspect that behind the scenes there's there's a little bit of back and forth between the White House and EPA on this. And I, um, I don't know what it's going to, you know, what's going to end up in the end, but uh, obviously, we've we've had all the public comments roll in. I mean, there's over nearly 12,000 public comments, uh, so EPA's got to consider those as well. And uh, I think, though, that uh, ag and biofuels has been well represented in, in the comments, and people have made it known that uh, the, the agreement and the, and the proposed rule don't match up. And so we'll see. Okay. Uh, you know, we'll see what the White House does. All right, Todd. Good to talk with you. Thank you. Todd Neely with DTN. Stay with us here on AOA. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres. That's smart. With Credence Soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credence variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. So one of several big-ticket items on the plate for Congress still this month is the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Now, some 300 ag groups have come out in support of the legislation. One big one that is not is the American Farm Bureau Federation. They have some uh, reservations about it. Let's talk about it with Allison Crittenden. She is uh, Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Allison, thank you very much for joining us. Um, from a Farm Bureau perspective, as you've analyzed uh, this uh, ag labor reform bill, uh, what do you see as the strengths of the bill, things you like? What do you see as the the big hang-up of what you don't like about it? Hi, Mike. Thank you. You know, the strengths that we see in this bill, uh, we are glad to see that it does adjust the status of the, the current unauthorized workforce. It allows those folks to, to get right with the law without, you know, any major penalty um, however, the problem is that workforce is aging, and they will not have a work requirement either four or eight years later when they're eligible for green cards. So this means that it's critical that we have a guest worker program that meets the needs of the American ag industry to ensure that future flow of uh, workers uh, you know, to come. Uh, so some of our, our issues with the bill, I think the, the first one is you know, it still uses the AWER. Uh, American farmers need a guest worker program that allows them to compete in the marketplace, especially when you have a situation where prices for goods have not kept up with those drastic increases in input costs, especially labor. Uh, In fact, over the last five years, we've seen the national AWER increase by about 17%, yet revenue for fruits and nuts has only increased about 3%, and revenue for vegetables and melons did not increase at all. 
So we need to make sure that uh, the the wage structure in any legislation uh, regarding ag workers allows farmers to be competitive in a marketplace that's becoming increasingly international. And because of that, um, those those imports coming in, it's really driving down prices. Given those concerns, and as I mentioned, some 300 ag groups have uh, pledged their support to the bill. Uh, can I mean, when we look at the situation where we're at now, would would you say the bill, if passed as it is, would be an improvement over what we have now, even given your concerns that it doesn't do enough or might not address some areas that you want to see more fully addressed? Would not it be better than what we have now? I mean, certainly you could say that there's improvements in the fact that those who are unauthorized would have, you know, work authorization to be here in the United States legally, um, and both the employers and those workers alike would no longer have, um, you know, that, that concern that, you know, their status may be called into question and possible deportation and workplace disruptions that take place from, from those instances. However, I think, you know, farmers are at a breaking point in basing the wage structure off of the 2019 AWER where it's already proven to be unsustainable, um, you know, doesn't place us in a much better situation moving forward. I think another area for improvement is, is on the year-round caps for the H-2A program. Um, so while the seasonal program does remain uncapped, and that is a positive, uh, the, the year-round H-2A access is capped at 20,000 visas a year for the first three years. And this is coupled with mandatory E-Verify less than three and a half years later, while we still have those really low caps. You know, our concern at American Farm Bureau is that with mandatory E-Verify in place and these low year-round visa caps, what's a farmer to do if they're not able to get one of those year-round visas? We're talking with Allison Crittenden with the American Farm Bureau Federation, and we're talking about uh, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Uh, It has made some progress. Uh, It was approved by the House Judiciary Committee, but still has a long ways to go. Allison, could there still be some tweaks made, some changes made uh, that would get your approval and, and, and move this forward even more, you think? Absolutely. We are working very hard to continue to improve the bill. We want to use the legislative process to do that. So should this come up on the House floor before the end of the year or even after that, you know, we look forward to engaging um, with members of Congress to introduce amendments that would address these concerns. But that sounds like it really lengthens the process even more. That seems to me it wouldn't get done anytime soon. And what we've seen on this in the past is the longer it goes, the harder it is to get anything done. And we haven't gotten anything really done on it uh, in recent times. And people are starting to use words like amnesty and things like that, which always kind of just blows up the whole process. I mean, are you, are you that concerned about this that you would say it's actually, are you uh, saying it would be amnesty or not? You know, for us, we're not concerned about how uh, members of Congress want to provide legal status to to the folks who are currently unauthorized. We recognize that those are, you know, vital employees to farms across the nation, um, and we support the efforts to, you know, allow them to get right with the law. Um, You know, unfortunately, sometimes provisions that do that get caught up in a bit more political rhetoric. Um, but, you know, as I said, that is something that we see as a positive element of this legislation. Um, so we hope that, you know, it doesn't get bogged down in, in a broader immigration debate. 
Groups like the National Milk Producers Federation have come out in support of this legislation. Um, obviously, the dairy industry would be greatly is greatly impacted by the ag labor uh, situation. Why do you? It's it seems unusual for three hundred some ag groups to be supportive of something and Farm Bureau uh, to be the one that's not. Uh, usually, you work pretty closely with these other groups. Why do you think there's such a difference here? Well, I think American Farm Bureau is one of the few organizations that represents farmers across the entire country and all different sectors of agriculture. And because of that, we have to make sure that a piece of legislation like this doesn't just meet the needs of dairy farmers or it doesn't just meet the needs of those that need, um, you know, their, their workers to have legal status. It needs to meet the needs of all of agriculture right now in the present, but also in the future. Uh, we need to make sure that it's, it's a long-term solution. And, you know, we continue to work to, to bring this legislation um, into a place where we can feel that it does provide a long-term solution. So where is it at now? As I mentioned, uh, it did get out of the House Judiciary Committee. So where, where is it at now? Uh, so we're waiting to see when it would be when there's floor time scheduled on the House floor. Uh, you know, there are a few things on Congress's to-do list before everybody heads home for Christmas. Um, so we will see if the Farm Workforce Modernization Act ends up on that list. Sounds to me like it's not. I mean, it sounds to me like when you've got spending bills and you've got a major trade deal like USMCA and you've got tax extenders and you've got all these other and the impeachment proceedings that are going on it sounds to me like this is being pushed to the back burner is that is that correct or not you know i'm not sure if it is or it's not i think you know one thing that may work to this piece of legislation's advantage is that um you know it is spearheaded by congresswoman lofgren she's from california uh speaker pelosi is also from california i'd have to imagine that the two of them probably have a a good relationship so perhaps um, you know, that, that strong relationship there uh, between those two members would, you know, help to bring this to the floor sooner. But, um, you know, certainly there are a lot of um, unknowns right now, especially with the dealings of the Judiciary Committee at the time. Yeah, you, at some point you just kind of run out of time here. They've pushed it back so far. But it does have bipartisan support, though, in Congress, doesn't it? Yes, there are Republican co-sponsors for this um, you know, we, we can't negate that. Um, they did get strong Republican support um, from folks, you know, off of the Judiciary Committee. So that's an accomplishment in and of itself, and at least it shows that there's an awareness of the issue. And I, 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 even though you, d- you don't agree fully with this legislation, obviously the ag labor issue is a major issue that Farm Bureau is working on. Absolutely. It's one of the top things that we hear about from our farmer members. And, you know, we remain committed to trying to find a solution for it. You know, our concerns with the Farm Workforce Modernization Act are in an effort to improve the bill so that it meets the needs of the agriculture industry as a whole. Um, And we certainly hope that by, you know, addressing and raising what these issues are, that we can end up with a product that works for, you know, farmers across the country. All right, Allison, thank you very much. We'll watch and see what happens. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Allison Crittenden, Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. So uh, on this ag labor reform bill, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, 
Again, you have some 300 ag groups supporting it. American Farm Bureau, as uh, Allison just explained, for uh, certain reasons is not uh, giving it its support. They have concerns with E-Verify and some other aspects of it. It's going to be interesting to see. Um, are they just going it, to... It, it just kind of feels like they're going to put it on the shelf and say, let's work on this some more when we come back next year. We'll see. But it uh, it has a lot of work. Obviously, it's going to have to be done before it really moves forward. And they're just, again, running out of time in this congressional session. Up next, we're going to talk about some good trade news, some de- positive developments with the EU. We'll talk about that next here on AOA. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credence soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, it's been a year where trade news, good trade news, positive trade news has been hard to come by. But we've had some, the deal with Japan, and also in just in recent days, the European Parliament voting to approve a plan granting the United States a country-specific share of the EU's duty-free high-quality beef quota. And we want to talk about that now with an economist with the U.S. Meat Export Federation, Aaron Bohr. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Why is this uh, such a positive step? What's the significance of this and the potential that it opens up for the U.S. Uh, beef industry? Right. Good morning. Yes. Thanks, Mike. Well, it's uh, a success on several fronts. And for one, I think for the more the trade policy side of it is that uh, it's a success in granting the U.S. a, a dominant share of uh, what what we in the U.S. think of as our quota, so that the U.S. and Europe negotiated as kind of a terms of agreement on the long-standing hormones case, so instead of the U.S. retaliating on a bunch of miscellaneous European products, uh, this agreement was meant to actually carve out a share of the European market at zero tariffs for U.S. beef exports into Europe. Uh, but to meet WTO rules, this quota had to be open to other supplying countries who met the high-quality definition. And eventually that led to Europe approving a number of other suppliers, and then that those suppliers undercutting our share of the quota. And so this um, uses WTO uh, rules to actually allocate us a share of the quota based on historical performance. And what that means is that Europe is not increasing the total quota into Europe. It remains at 45,000 tons, zero tariffs. But now we get a U.S.-specific share of that starting at 18,500 metric tons and then increasing to 35,000 tons over seven years. And so I know for, for some, the, the tons don't mean a whole lot. But basically, we're doing just under $200 million worth of U.S. beef to Europe annually right now. And that should increase to closer to $400 million by at least by 2025, and then increasing over to more than $500 million, um, 
certain near 2030 or even earlier, depending on how fast you use up that quota. And so the market has sort of been capped for us, and as USMEF, we haven't really explored further into various markets within markets within Europe because we just haven't been able to grow the this quarter the quota operates on a quarterly basis and these quarterly allocations currently are being utilized within the first couple of weeks. So it's a huge challenge for the the entire team and lining up EU approved cattle, so NHTC, uh, lining them up and then getting that beef produced for Europe and landing in the market just within the first couple of weeks of each quarter. And then having killed product available you know, year-round for those European users, uh, chefs and retailers, it just has kind of been a nightmare. So this should allow room for growth and room for product to be landing with landing in Europe weekly you know, rather than just the first couple of weeks of each quarter. And so for the producer, it should hopefully mean increased demand for NHPC cattle. You're looking at the potential to grow by about 25% within the first year, and then another 25% in the next year, which should be 2021, because the quota jumped to 23,000 tons in year two. So that's yet another 25% increase, basically, in the availability of quota to ship into Europe in year two. And so it's opening further access into a niche market for U.S. beef. And to put that in further perspective, um, if we look at our top markets for killed beef specifically, um, you're talking about Japan, about 150,000 tons, which will be growing because of the Japan green that you mentioned earlier. The next row is about 120,000 tons, Canada about 70,000 tons, Korea 55,000 tons, Taiwan 25,000 tons, and Europe currently is about 15,000 tons of U.S. beef going, and that's going to grow again, to 18,500 in year one, and then eventually the 35,000 tons for that quota potential. So you can see Europe placing in there behind Korea still, possibly edging ahead of Taiwan. And you think about the populations in those respective markets, uh, with Europe at over 500 million wealthy, mostly wealthy people, um, it tells you there's still a lot more potential in that market if there was further access gains. Um, but for now, it allows us to grow, again, in the niche, um, and high value market because that is some um, from NHTC. And the significance here is that has been such a tough market for us to get into because of their restrictions on hormones and we we know the the history. There's a lot of baggage there. Uh, so this yeah. this kind of a breakthrough is significant given the the headwinds we have faced for so long there and doesn't resolve all trading issues between us, obviously, but does this give us then a, a, a foot in the door to maybe increasing uh, sales even more into the European Union moving forward? Uh, we hope so, certainly. That has to be the goal. And Europe's imports, um, not just from the U.S., but from all countries, are, are heavily restricted, mainly to tariffs and quotas, as well as the SPS barriers, as we call them, or the no glyph emotions at all, uh, allowed. And so everyone is under these same access conditions, but we will have the duty-free quota, which should help. Um, there's pretty limited duty-free access outside of the duty-free quota, unless there's a little bit in various FTAs, but even in Europe, FTAs have been very restricted in what they've given. So Canada has CETA, and they have their own duty-free quotas through that, but have yet to really gain momentum there. So 
it will be interesting to see how the market develops. We also have the Mercosur Agreement, which Europe gave about 99,000 tons to all four countries. We talk to the South Americans, they say it's not even a meaningful trade volume. So um, Europe, you know, currently they're importing about 200,000 tons um, total of sold and frozen beef annually, and that's just 4% of their beef consumption, and that tracks very very closely with the available quotas, and that's going to remain the case at this stage. Um, but how much more can we carve out? Certainly getting beyond... Um, this quota, and then we can fish up under our Hilton, which is 11,000 roughly tons at 20% tariff. Um, there is that spillover opportunity to go further. But otherwise, we're talking the need for a free trade agreement and one that includes agriculture, which, as you know, has been um, the sticking point thus far in the sort of preliminary talks. And you know, living through QTIP is also a major sticking point. But Europe's producers have lots of challenges and if you go to Europe, you just hear over and over again how beef is destroying the planet. Or the planet. And so there's a, a huge um, campaign needed to reassure consumers in Europe generally that, that beef is not destroying the planet. And we are a sustainable product, and we have huge environmental benefits, actually, with the upcycling of ruminants and using cattle to you know manage grasslands. And so I see opportunities, hopefully, to turn the public um, back in favor of beef will be a small part of that. But, but yeah, Europe's a tough market, uh, but huge, huge potential. We're talking with Aaron Bohr, economist with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And finally, Aaron, um, there has to be some optimism, I think, as we go into 2020 for, uh, for our meat exports. Uh, you know, this year, if it's taught us anything – be ready for the unexpected, especially when it comes to trade. Things can blow up at any given moment, it seems like. But when you look at this this deal uh, with the EU, with Japan, uh, China, we know there's a protein demand building there because of what's going on with African swine fever. And whether or not we get a deal or not, they're going to need to buy some uh, to meet that demand. It looks like there's a lot of uh, uh, positive potential uh, for our even more export growth in 2020. Absolutely, Mike. Yep. I mean, when we talked a month ago, I was super upbeat. I remain that way. Our forecasts right now are pretty um, cautious, calling exports in 2020 up 4 to 5%. But there's huge upside potential on top of that. I think we're even too conservative in our Japan estimates, and that alone would push us you know, further in the range of 6 to 8% growth overall. And you hit on China. If there happens to be a phase one agreement, um, not going to gamble either way on that, but if there happens to be one, then that pushes the needle uh, massively for U.S. beef export potential. And China is its just such a huge driver right now in the markets. And their October imports um, of beef from all suppliers were valued at $781 million, that's just the month of October, that was an 80% increase year on year. Um, it's just pretty mind-blowing, and I was in Argentina week before last, and those, um, well, that country and many companies are shipping, you know, most of their production if they're trying to approve to China, and it's really just kind of mind-blowing what's happening as, as China pulls products from everywhere, and just overnight, China's GAC 
listed for more Argentine establishments and relisted some from Australia and New Zealand. And yes, their, their need for protein is huge. Their beef imports running January through October were $4.6 billion, that's 51%, um, by far the top importer in the world, with obviously tremendous growth. And that's not, that growth was underway prior to African swine fever, but definitely the protein deficit is further. Yep. So they're running this demand for beef. So let's, uh, there's some hope there, some real potential, I think some positive things developing as far as uh, our meat exports uh, for 2020. Aaron Bohr, economist for U.S. Meat Export Federation, has been our guest. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks so much, Mike. All right. So all in all, it's been a pretty good year this year for meat exports, given the trade issues. Hopefully even better year coming up next year. Stay with us on AOA. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we have not talked in a while with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net, so he joins us now. Matt, thanks for being with us. Uh, You're based uh, east central Illinois. All the harvest done in that area? Yeah, pretty much. There's there's very little. uh, There's a couple tree uh, fields here and there, but for the most part, everybody's done, and got most of their equipment put away so we had a decent fall too which is nice and that uh, most anhydrous got put on that people wanted to put on and a lot of groundwork was done as well so you know i think for the most part a much better situation going into the winter than what we were looking at last year at least in this part of the world yeah and we know there are a lot of folks uh, that harvest is not done and won't get done until sometime probably next spring so we we certainly feel for those folks and uh uh understand that it is really a it's been a hard year that just keeps going on and on but as you mentioned in other parts uh, of the midwest actually ahead of where we were last year as far as being able to get some fall field work done right yeah no, that's, there's no question about it you know uh, yeah, every time i write uh, my newsletter i, I certainly uh, have a shout out to, the, to those guys especially in the upper midwest because uh, that's a tough spot tough spot to be but you know last year across the board it seemed like everyone was in the same type of situation where what we needed was as good of a spring as we could possibly uh, get and that's you know obviously not what we got so uh, it kind of laid the groundwork uh, for the growing season uh, here in 2019 uh, you know in the fall of 2018 and so hopefully this year at least uh, part of the midwest being able to be in a little bit better situation uh, is it's going to help uh, to be able to have a little bit of more comfort level going into uh, you know going into the uh, spring next year but Matt, as far as markets are concerned, it's hard to see any rally coming here before the end of the year. China, a China deal might have might spark that, but that's sounding less likely to get done this year. Remains to be seen about USMCA if they do get it done, uh, and there's there's still questions about that. How much of a spark that would be? Uh, is, do you see anything there between now and the end of the year that gives us a rally? 
you know the old adage that uh, the bears get Thanksgiving and bulls get Christmas. Uh, you know, hopefully there's a little bit of something to that. You know, obviously uh, we've seen a little bit of buying coming in after Thanksgiving. I mean, bottom line is the RSI on soybeans has just been uh, about as low as what uh, what you could uh, imagine it being. So uh, the market is extremely oversold. We've seen consistently lower highs for the bean market for several days in a row. Uh, and, and so that that bean situation looks pretty rough. Uh, am I looking for any big rally? I don't, you know, the thing is, you got to have something to kind of get the market going. And uh, good, solid export sales and inspections the last couple, three, four weeks just haven't done anything to get the bean market excited. And so you got to ask yourself, what would make that market rally? I think for corn, you know, having still over 10% of the crop out in the field uh, is a concern. The market sure hasn't treated it as a major concern, but mm-hmm. I do think that's part of the reason that the corn market's been able to stay intact for the most part. But as far as a big rally, I think that, uh, you know, there's got to be something out there that you and I aren't thinking of right now, other than the trade deal being bigger and better than what a person thought it might be, uh, you know, to get the market going. And after the news that uh, President Trump said uh, you know, that, that we might not see it until after the 2020 elections. I guess my personal opinion is maybe that makes it more likely that we actually will right. see it because uh, the games that we've played here in this situation have, have been enough to wear you and me both out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it sets up a very interesting scenario going into next year. It's always, I always find it fascinating to see, uh, you know, what acres are going to, where they're going to go and what the market buys and what are the signals and everything. So you got this dynamic of uh, acres that didn't get planted this year coming back into production. You've got farmers holding on to a lot of uh, grain from this year. Uh, where do you see us going as far as what the market signal might be of what to plant next year? Yeah, I mean, that that's an interesting question for sure. And I, I think earlier on, you know, when the bean market was uh, – uh, 960, 970, a person had to ask themselves, you know, why a person wouldn't want to maybe uh, push their bean acres a little bit more. Uh, you know, you're probably going to be uh, picking up, uh, oh, I don't know, um, you know, you could be getting into the mid-80s on soybean acres, I guess, in my opinion. And I don't know that you can get above mid-90s on corn acres, but uh, the thing you got to ask yourself with some of these people throwing out 100 million acre uh, suggestions are that, uh, you know, is, is the economic uh, security, I guess, of the, is the farm economy good enough to be able to get 100 million acres of corn? And, and I guess my my uh, thought there is that it probably is not. I know that the ERS, for instance, said that uh, we would be looking at farm income up uh, 10% 2019 versus 2018. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you hear about bankruptcies being as high as what they've been in a long time. So, yeah, I think that we're still looking at liquidity being a major issue, and I think that that's going to spill over into some of your planning decisions. So, yes, you're going to see acreage up uh, for 2020. There's no question about it. Uh, but I don't know that you're going to be able to get these extravagant numbers that some people are talking about as far as corn acres are concerned. And, of course, then we we assume or hope that we get better weather next year. But recent uh, history tells us, you know, that may not be the case. I mean, it could be another if it's a repeat of this year, weather-wise, we're, we're, here we go again. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, you know, and you're you're seeing a fair amount of people kind of jumping on that bandwagon that, hey, we might be looking at a really wet spring again. 
here in 2020. Uh, if that's the case, then there's no doubt that uh, it's going to uh, maybe uh, make the market a little uh, sensitive. But you and I both know as well that, you know, whenever you uh, had people throwing out, you know, I, I was wondering whether we could get to a 160 national yield with the kind of weather we had because this was not a good start to the crop. And we know that the corn crop needs a good start. Uh, and then you come in here and we're currently at a 167. Now, I think that could still be scaled back a little bit, but you and I both know we raised a pretty decent crop considering the weather. And so market might not get near as excited about a wet spring next year as what it did this year. Yeah, that's a good point because the story's kind of been, look what didn't get done this year because of weather. And maybe the story we're not talking about is and maybe the markets are looking at this what what did get planted and what did get grown and what was produced with all those challenges it's it's quite a story in and of itself that we'll be talking about for a long long time matt always good to talk with you thanks a lot hey thanks for having me on take care matt bennett with agmarket.net that wraps it up for today thank you for joining us here on adams on agriculture have a great day hope you'll join us again tomorrow The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions.